Our God, we confess that it is all about you. It is not about us. It is all for you and for your glory. God, as we read your word this evening, help us to continue to realize that. Help us to continue in worship as we read and hear your word. Grant us understanding of it to better see that it is all about you. And may you be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. As we are going to be continuing uh, from this morning where we started in uh, verse 8. We're going to be starting this evening in verse 11 of chapter 2. We began really dealing with this passage last Sunday night and uh, finishing up this section of uh, Colossians right now uh, with this evening. And it should be that the phrase that, that you've really heard over and over and over again uh, last Sunday night and this Sunday morning uh, is the phrase that Christ is better. Christ is better than anything this world has to offer. Christ is better than the false philosophies of this world. Christ is better than the empty deceits uh, that we face and that are attacking us. Christ is better than anything that we can find. If you were to take all the wealth of this world, if you were to take all the power of this world, if you were to take all the comfort, all the ease of life, all the pleasure that this world has to offer and compress that into one single moment, even compared to that one single moment, Christ is infinitely better than that. Christ is infinitely better than anything this world has to offer or any temptation that Satan can bring to us. And this morning we saw that one of the reasons that Christ is better is just by virtue of who he is. By virtue of who he is as the fullness of God. And we also saw that he is better uh, by virtue of his uh, being the head, that he is uh, the head of all rule and head of all authority. And tonight we're going to continue this thinking of Christ is better by looking more at Christ is better because of what he has done. This morning is Christ better because of who he is. Tonight, we're really going to focus on Christ is better because of what he has done on my behalf and on your behalf. And so let's just dive in. Starting back at verse 8, because I want you to hear just kind of the flow of his thought as we're going along. So Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt uh, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Paul is going to point us to the fact that Christ 
is better than all these false philosophies, these empty deceits, because of what God has done through Christ. One thing that you're going to notice over and over in this passage, if you'll glance through verses uh, basically 10 through 15, you're going to see a phrase that's repeated over and over again. You're going to see in him or with him or through him. And Paul's point is that through Christ or us being in Christ or with Christ, God has done all these things in our life and it's all through Christ. And so tonight we'll see several things that Paul points out to us to to help us realize that Christ is better by virtue of what he has done. So the first thing, Christ is better because in him you are circumcised. Now, before we can really get at what Paul is is pointing out here, we need to jump back to the Old Testament. What What was the whole point of circumcision in the Old Testament? If you remember back to Abraham... Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out, says, go to the land that I'm going to show you, uh, and I will make you into a a great nation. Abraham goes along on his way, and then we come to Genesis 15. God makes this covenant with Abraham, and God says, I am going to make you into a great nation. Two chapters later, in Genesis 17, we get this this, uh, command from God where he says, Abraham... I have made this covenant with you, and now as a sign of that covenant, all the males who are part of your family and who are your descendants must be circumcised. And so this was to be a sign that they were under the covenant of God, and they were falling into this covenant that God made with Abraham. Now everything's good and fine so far, but what happened was the people of Israel began to distort the idea of what this was for. And so they began to, to see it differently. They saw it as almost a sign that, that if I am circumcised, then that means that I am saved or that I have God's favor or it's something that, that I am doing that makes God happy with me and makes me okay with God rather than it just being a sign that I'm submitting to the covenant. Do you get the difference there? It, was, it became something that they said, well, I'm good. I've got this taken care of, so now I'm good. I can live and do whatever I want. And that's basically what they did. So we see in Israel's history them constantly going after idols, constantly disobeying uh, the word of God and just bowing down to these false gods. And so we get in the Old Testament the description that they need something better. They need something better than just this physical sign of circumcision. They need something spiritual to take place uh, in their lives. And so in the Old Testament, there starts to be this phrase uh, of needing uh, a circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 30, uh, verse 6 is one of the places we find that. And listen to what it says. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. So there's talking about a need not for a physical circumcision, but a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. And now Paul is announcing that in Christ, that circumcision of the heart has come. It's not a physical circumcision. It's a circumcision that's done by God in the heart. Notice a phrase that he puts there. Look at, look at verse 11. It says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands not without not with hands in the greek that's just one word 
And it's a word that's used in the New Testament to indicate something that cannot be accomplished by man, but must be done by God. And so what Paul is saying here is that through Christ, God has done a work in your heart that could not be done by man alone, but instead has been accomplished by God. It's not something that you can do, but it's something that God does. And what we're talking about here, when we're talking about circumcision of the heart, basically we're getting to the point that God brings new life into us. We're talking about, the theological term is regeneration, where God takes the man or woman who is dead in their sins, brings them to life in Christ. And he's saying here that God has done this. Listen to Romans chapter 2. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, speaking of the physical circumcision, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision that, that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not for men, but from God. This new circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, is something that Christ has accomplished, God has worked in our lives through Christ. And this is what he says. I want, I want you to get this. Listen to verse 11 again. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In the Old Testament, a minor surgery brought about you being identified as being under the covenant. And now what we have is Christ through the removal of his flesh on the cross we are brought into a new covenant. When he's talking about the circumcision that Christ undergoes, he's talking about the beating that Christ endured. He is talking about the thorns being nailed upon his head. He is talking about the nails going through the hands and through the feet and Christ being placed upon that cross. And that is the circumcision that he is talking about there that brings us into life with God. And so... Paul is pointing out and saying, look, you have been brought from death into life by virtue of what Christ has done. And so don't you see, don't you understand that Christ is better than any of these other things that are being thrown at you because he has bought you something that you could not do on your own. And that is a new heart, new life. And so first, Christ is better because we have been circumcised in him if we are believers. Second, he is better because we have been buried with him in baptism. Look at uh, verse 12 again. Having been buried with him in baptism. Now you know what baptism means, what it refers to. Uh, the literal word basically means being uh, dipped or being immersed. Uh, and the, the picture of baptism is someone being taken under the water to represent their death. To represent that they have basically died in Christ, their old man is dead. That old woman uh, is gone and is there no longer. When Christ died, he was placed in a tomb. And in that tomb, they put his body and then they put a stone in front of that tomb. And so if anybody looked at that tomb, they would say there is a body in that tomb. That person in there is dead. And so the picture of baptism is the same thing. When we are taken and baptized and put under the water, the rest of the body sees, the rest of the world is to see, hey, this person is dead. They have died, and there is new life uh, that is in them. And so it's as if when Christ died on the cross, we died too. In Galatians 2.20 says, Paul says, I have been crucified 
with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so he points us to that picture. And Christ is better because through him we have died on that cross. And so then he continues this, uh, uh, stating there in uh, uh, verse 12, that through faith, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised up with him, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So not only have we been buried with Christ, but it says that we've also been raised in Christ. And it's this symbolism of baptism here again, raised from death into life. Now there's a couple things I want you to notice about this. Uh, The first thing I want you to notice, is I want you to notice who is doing the action in this. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was in college, I was an English major, and one of the classes I had to take was a class called Descriptive Linguistics. And it was just, uh, if, if you're an English major, you think it's kind of cool and exciting. If you're not, like most everybody else, you think it's really a dorky thing. But language kind of, I, I kind of like uh, and get excited about. <laughs> and so we did all this discussion of, of nouns and what are the proper terms for nominals and, and all these different things and verbs and all the tense and voice and all these different things that come uh, with verbs. Well, one of the things... Uh, that's uh, distinct about a verb is is that it has voice. You have active voice and passive voice. If you have active voice, if you speak uh, with active voice, that means the action is happening. You're doing the action. So let's say, um, like, I hit a ball. I'm doing the action, right? Now let's say the ball hits me. I'm receiving the action. Make sense? I hit the ball, I'm doing... I'm doing it. The ball hits me. I'm receiving the action. Well, in this verse right here, we see passive voice being used. It's not that we raised ourselves. It's not us doing the action. But who's doing the action here? It's God doing the action through what Christ has accomplished. And so that's the whole thing that's going on throughout this entire passage. If you look... And everything that's happening from verse 10 all the way through verse 15, you'll see that it's God doing this through Christ. So you hear things like, you were circumcised. Not you did this yourself. You were circumcised in heart by God through Christ. You were buried uh, by God through Christ. You were raised by God through Christ. Is God performing the action on us, not us doing it ourselves? So the point is that he is bringing about this work in our lives so that he gets all the glory. And the next thing we see in this verse helps point out that truth. Look at what it says there. It says that you are also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, there's kind of a strange phrase that's here. Notice what it says. It says that we have been raised up with him through faith in the working of God. Now, when we typically think about faith, we're going to think about faith in God or faith in Christ but that's not what Paul says here Paul says faith in the working of God why is that why would he say faith in the working rather than faith in God or faith in Christ because he's pointing us to something important that word Working there is is the word that can also be translated uh, energy or or power. And he's pointing us to the fact that this is something that occurs through the energy, through the power, through the work of God. 
And so what he is saying here is that we must have trust in this being something that only God can do. This is something that we see different times throughout the New Testament where we are pointed to the fact that God delights in us trusting in his ability alone to accomplish something. In the Gospels, we see uh, Jesus doing these great works in response to people's belief that he is able to do it. Listen to, to some of these. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 28 and 29, if you want to jot that down or look it up, there are two blind men who come to Jesus and they, they're wanting him to heal them. And so here's the question that he asks. He doesn't ask, do you believe in me? But here's this question. He says, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they do. They're trusting in his power. Matthew 8, there's a leper who comes up to Jesus and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He is trusting in Jesus' ability, his power. You remember the woman with the issue of blood and she is thinking, if I can just touch his garment, he can heal me. They're trusting in his power to be able to do this. And Paul is pointing us to the fact that these are things that can only be accomplished by God through Christ. You see, Christ is better than any false philosophy, any empty deceit that this world has, any pleasure that this world has, any false Jesus that this world can come up with. He is better than those things because only he can accomplish these things in our lives. It is only God through Christ who can circumcise our hearts, who can bury us and raise us back to life and do this work in our hearts. It's only Christ who is able to do that. This is, this is going to be really made clear in the next verse. We're going to see here in verse 13 that, that Christ is better because it's through him that we've been made alive. Listen, listen to verse 13 again. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Notice what it says there. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your heart. Remember what we said about hearts being circumcised? What did that refer to? You can answer out loud if you want to. What did that refer to? Hearts being circumcised. Yes, new life. Regeneration is a theological term. Uh, the work that God uh, does in us to give us life. And so he says here, now you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in, in your uncircumcision of heart. You were dead before knowing Christ. You were dead without life, totally dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, there's a, there's a picture here of us being dead in our sins. George Whitfield, the preacher from uh, the 18th century, uh, described it this way. I, I want you to just hear this. He's talking about Lazarus because it is very descriptive of what we were like prior to Christ. Listen to this. Come, you dead, Christless, unconverted sinners. He's appealing to those who are lost. Come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, locked up and stinking in a dark cave with a great stone placed on top of it. View him again and again. Go nearer to him. Don't be afraid. Smell him. See how he stinks. Stop there now. Pause a while. While you're gazing upon the corpse of Lazarus, let me tell you with great plainness, but greater love, that this dead 
bound, entombed, stinking carcass is but a faint representation of your poor soul in its natural state. For whether you believe it or not, your spirit in you, though clothed in flesh and blood, is as literally dead to God, as truly dead in trespasses and sins, as the body of Lazarus was in the cave. Was he bound hand and foot with grave clothes? So are you bound hand and foot with your corruptions. And as a stone was laid on the sepulcher, so is there a stone of unbelief upon your ignorant heart. Perhaps you've lain in this state not only four days, but many years, stinking in God's nostrils. And what is still more affecting is that you are as unable to raise yourself out of this loathsome, dead state to a life of righteousness and true holiness as ever Lazarus was able to raise himself from the cave in which he lay so long. You may try by your own power and the force and energy of moral persuasion and rational arguments, but all your efforts, exerted with so much vigor, will prove quite fruitless and abortive till that same Jesus who said, take away the stone and cried, Lazarus, come forth, also quickens you and makes you alive. That was our state. That was me. As dead spiritually as Lazarus was physically, rotting in the tomb. Now, the point of this isn't to put us into a state of spiritual depression the point of this is to point us to the abundant mercy and grace of God we were that dead Lazarus we were that dead person spiritually now if we think about that and then think about the grace of God how great is the grace of God. How abundant is the mercy of God. If we were dead like Lazarus spiritually and now have been raised up to life, how great is God? How great is Christ? How great is the work of Christ in our life if he called forth to us and said, Scott, come to life. That is an amazing God and that is an amazing work of grace. Christ is better because he has done this work that we could not do. But this picture gets even better. It gets even better. Listen, listen to this, what it says in verse uh, 14. After having uh, forgiven us all our transgressions, verse 14, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way and has nailed it to the cross. You see, when there is a debt, there is a record made of that debt. I have a mortgage on my house, and it is bigger than I wish it was. And Citizens Bank has a very clear record of that mortgage, and they will not let me forget it. If I do, they will come for me or just take my house. There's a record of that. And God knows every single sin that we have committed and we have a debt that is incalculable what is that debt that debt is our sin it is every single disobedient thought act word that I ever did or have done and my life has been filled with disobedience after disobedience after disobedience. But this says 
this says here, get this picture. Our debt has been nailed to the cross. Christ took that certificate of debt that we have and he wiped it clean and nailed it to the cross and so I bear it no more. That debt of my sin has been paid in full by Christ and it has been laid there at the cross and I bear it no more ever again. You remember the song, It Is Well With My Soul and that that verse that says, uh, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. This is a good thought. If you are in Christ, it has been nailed to the cross. You will never, ever bear that debt again. Everything paid in full. That is good. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. My debt is gone. Christ, Christ is better. Christ is better than anything we could ever think of or find. He has paid the debt in full. It's gone. Listen to this last picture we get. Verse 15. It says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed, over them. Paul is telling us what God has done here through Christ. He says that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. Uh, in the New Testament, this is a, a picture that's used uh, to describe Satan and the forces of darkness, all the, the evil forces that are out there. And it says that Christ has disarmed them, and he has disarmed them through the cross. Remember what Genesis 3.15 says. Remember back to that Adam and Eve in the garden, they sinned, had the fall. God came to them. He's issuing out the punishments, issuing out the, the repercussions that are come from that. And he is speaking to Satan. And what does he say? He says that, that there will come one who will crush your head. And there on the cross, the forces of darkness could see Christ dying on the cross and they have maybe this glimmer of hope that the sun is going to die and they have won the victory. But in reality, there upon the cross, Christ crushed the head of Satan. And the victory has been won by Christ upon the cross. The victory has been won over Satan. And so we get this amazing picture that comes next to describe the completeness and fullness of this victory. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The picture here is of what kings would do and generals would do when they come back from victory, uh, from a battle. They, when they would come back from a battle, these generals would parade through the street, bring back the spoils of war, of everything that they had uh, brought back from their battle. There's, a, there's one incident I want to, I want to uh, recount to you just to show this picture. There's an ancient Roman historian who describes uh, a Roman general by the name of Emilius Paulus. He defeated the Macedonians and he came back to Rome. And so this is what happened when he came back. They erected scaffolding all up and down the streets of Rome where he was going through. 
And everybody in Rome came out so they could be seated on this scaffolding going all up and down the rows. And everybody came dressed in white to symbolize the victory uh, that they had won. So we've got all of Rome coming out, awaiting this victory, uh, this victorious general as he comes to parade down through the street. Three days this goes on, this parade. The first day, 259 chariots come through displaying the statues and images that have been taken back from the enemy. On the second day, wagons carried through the, all the armor and the swords, the helmets, everything that the defeated soldiers were carrying. They had wagons with three, and wagons with 3,000 people carrying the silver of the defeated people. On the third day, there were 120 sacrificial oxen, the Macedonian gold coming after that, the king's chariot coming next, the crown coming next, the armor of the king, the king's servants following after that, then the king's children, then the king finally coming, and then all the rest of the defeated prisoners coming after that. And this was to show the rest of the Roman world and any enemies that they might face, look at the might and power of Rome. Don't mess with us. We have won the complete victory. And here we have God saying that he has won the complete victory over Satan. This is good news. You know, Satan may still be a roaring lion. And there is still a war that we're facing, a war for our hearts and our minds. What is going to take our hearts captive? But Satan has been dealt a blow that is fatal. And in God's time, he will wrap up that victory. And if you are in Christ, your final victory is absolutely certain. There may be trials that come in your life. As you seek to follow Christ, you may face persecution. You will face persecution, as uh, Scripture says. You may even face death at the hands of men as you seek to follow Christ. But your final victory is certain. And God has done all this through Christ. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with, with all this from, from 8 through 15 where we've seen how Christ is better? Where we've seen that he has circumcised our hearts, he's, we've been buried with him, we're raised with him, we've been forgiven, our debt's been nailed to the cross, Christ has won the victory. So what do we do? What does this mean to us right now? I really think it's the same thing we said this morning that we let go of our hold upon our life and we say, it's whatever you want. Whatever you command in your word, I'll do. Whatever you call me to do, that's what I'll do. My life is a blank check before you. Lord, whatever it is that you desire for my life, I'm not going to cling too tightly to my life because it's yours. You're better. You're better than anything this world has to offer. So my life is yours. It's yours. So maybe, maybe the question to ask of ourselves is, are we holding anything back? Are, are we holding back our, our life? Are we holding back our time? Are we, 
are we holding back our money? Are we holding back our, our resources? Are we holding back our, our comfort? What what is it that we're that we're holding on to? Rather than just laying it all at the feet of Christ and saying, Here I am. It's it's whatever you want. May our lives be just that blank check. As we look at Christ and say, You're better. You are better than anything else that I could ever have. And if I could have everything this world has to offer, I still want Christ. He is better. May that be our heart's desire. Let's close in prayer. God, we, we thank you for the work that you have done in Christ, the work that you have accomplished in our lives. And Lord, we pray. We pray that our lives will be just laid before you, that we will not cling too tightly to our own lives, but we will say, whatever you want, Whatever you command your word will do and whatever you call us to do, God, we'll do. God, we just want to be taken captive by Christ. May he be our all-consuming desire, our all-consuming passion of our life. And so that if we lost everything but have Christ, we say it's worth it because Christ is better. Help us, help us to have that attitude and that desire. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.